Uh, we're going to be having two readings today, and uh, the first reading comes from 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 30. Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah, and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. The king and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. They had not been able to celebrate it at the regular time because not enough priests had consecrated themselves and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. The plan seemed right both to the king and to the whole assembly. They decided to send a proclamation throughout Israel from Beersheba to Dan, calling the people to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. It had not been celebrated in large numbers according to what was written. At the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials, which read, People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their fathers, so that he made them an object of horror as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land, for the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. The couriers went from town to town and Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but the people scorned and ridiculed them. Nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered, following the word of the Lord. A very large crowd of people assembled in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. They removed the altars in Jerusalem and cleared away the incense altars and threw them into the Kidron Valley. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and the Levites were ashamed and consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the temple of the Lord. Second Chronicles 32. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. A large force of men assembled, and they blocked all the springs and the streams that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they asked. Then he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the supporting terraces of the city of David. 
He also made large numbers of weapons and shields. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate and encouraged them with these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah the king of Judah said. Later, when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and all his forces were laying siege to Lachish, he sent his officers to Jerusalem with this message for Hezekiah, king of Judah, and for all the people of Judah who were there. This is what, this, this is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says, the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. Did not Hezekiah himself remove this God's high places and altars, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before one altar and burn sacrifices on it? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my fathers destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no god of any other nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your god deliver you from my hand? Sennacherib's officers spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters insulting the Lord, the God of Israel, and saying this against him. Just as the gods of the people of the other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. Then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and to make them afraid in order to capture the city. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the other peoples around around the world, the work of men's hands. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the leaders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons cut him down with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts 
for Hezekiah, king of Judah. From then on, he was highly regarded by all the nations. Okay, let's come before our Lord in a time of prayer and then think about this passage uh, from 2 Chronicles. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this day and time we share together now. Uh, we pray that you'd help us to learn more from your word and be strengthened and encouraged as we, we contemplate this message from 2 Chronicles and see how it's fulfilled through Jesus our Lord. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever had those moments in life where you feel life's pretty complicated and you might be tempted to lose some hope? I had a chat with a friend only two weeks ago who I talked to about this sermon illustration. He said he's very happy for me to share with you something that went on in his life. He rang me up fairly early in the morning uh, and cut to the chase fairly fast. He said he'd like a prayer for his wife who was just diagnosed with a brain tumour. And so as I listened to him, I could hear uh, the anxiety in his voice and it was, it was uh, a difficult time. And so I listened to him, that's the right thing to do, and tried to encourage him that we would be praying for him but ultimately only he could walk through that situation with his family. As I ended the call, it was an interesting moment. It was a, there was a great deal of uncertainty that he was experiencing and of course I didn't know what the outcome of this would be as well. Life in a fallen world has all manner of difficulties, doesn't it? And there are so many uncertainties and problems that we have to work through. It's hard to know how the future is going to play out. I'll come back to some of that story towards the end, so I won't leave you hanging. Um, but suffice to say, sometimes that uncertainty can feel very uncomfortable. And perhaps this is raising a question for us about how we should live. How should we live in a fallen world as we face so many difficulties and uncertainties in life? Is there something that we can learn from God's word today, an approach perhaps even from Hezekiah's life, as we look at how he faced an uncertain future as well. As we look at his life, maybe we can step back and think about our lives and how we can respond in faith. Well, to give some context for the, for the story of Hezekiah's life, we've only got four chapters to work through, friends, so that's, um, that's something we'll be uh, cracking the whip with. But uh, we saw that his father before him was Ahaz. King Ahaz really made a mess of things. He was a rotten king, wasn't he? As we saw from what Scott taught us last week. I mean, what more needs to be said about a king who sacrificed his own sons in the fire? Oh, that's wonderful leadership for, for the people of God, isn't it? That's, there, there's your example. And like a fool, he relied on king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser III, for help against his Syrian enemies. Except we read that at the very time he needed help, from the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser III, came and gave him trouble instead of help and in 722 BC deported people back to, Syria, back to Assyria. We got a summary of his life and we're told that he gathered together the furnishings of the temple and took them away and then he shut the doors of the temple. He set up altars on every street corner in Jerusalem, built high places 
to burn sacrifices to other gods and provoked the Lord God to anger. Well, what would his son Hezekiah be like? Would he be just another domino in a line of bad kings? Well, we've had some readings this morning, so you've probably already had a bit of a heads up. Suffice to say, we could say Hezekiah was different. He worshipped the Lord. I'll pick this up. If you're going to stick with me, you'll probably want to read some of this as we go. So if you kindly turn to chapter 29, I'll start us off at verse 1 in chapter 29, and we'll read some verses here about Hezekiah's life. 29 verse 1. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Now, although it says his father David there, it's because he takes the character of David, not because David was in fact his dad. His dad was Ahaz. Verse 3, in the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and Levites, assembled them in the square on the east side, and he said, listen to me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Our fathers were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors of the portico and put out the lamps. They did not burn incense or present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary to the God of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. He has made them an object of dread and horror and scorn, as you can see with your own eyes. This is why our fathers have fallen captive by the sword, and why our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him, to minister before him and to burn incense. Hezekiah begins very well, doesn't he? The tone here is fairly upbeat. It's as though the darkest night has ended and the sun is rising, and he does what's right in the eyes of the Lord. We start to see how this plays out in practice. In an opposite move to his father who shut the doors of the temple, Hezekiah opens the temple doors and he repairs them. He called the priests and the Levites to consecrate themselves according to God's law, which is the idea that they're being prepared for service in the presence of God. They're, they're, they're made holy or separate for God's service. And the first thing we see that they do is clean up the temple. In verses 6 to 8, Hezekiah understands God's wrath against the people is growing out of their unfaithfulness to God. They've turned their backs on God. This language of forsaking the Lord is a way of saying they, they've, they've buried their relationship with God. Another part of their failure was their failure to worship the Lord at Jerusalem in the temple as God established in the law. They didn't maintain the sacrificial system that God established so that people would maintain their relationship with him. 
In verse 8, we get a summary. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. He's made them an object of dread and horror and scorn. As you can see with your own eyes, this is why our fathers have fallen by the sword, why our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. And that's a reference to uh, the 722 BC deportation to Assyria. But now there's a array of hope. Things are looking brighter under King Hezekiah. Things are going to be different because he was committed to God's terms. If you have a look at uh, from verse uh, 19, after the purifying of the temple, this is what the priests and the Levites said. We have prepared and consecrated all the articles that King Ahaz removed in his unfaithfulness while he was king. They are now in front of the Lord's altar. Hezekiah authorised all the appropriate sacrifices to be made. These were atonement sacrifices for the sin of all of the people. There were also burnt offerings uh, made for the conscience of the worshippers. And these things are, are done before they come in praise to God. They're actually dealing with their sin first and then they're coming in praise to the Lord. And so we're given a picture of a, a humble king who's doing what is right in verse 29. When the offerings were finished, the king and everyone present with him knelt down and worshipped. King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and bowed their heads and worshipped. Verse 31, then Hezekiah said, you've now dedicated yourselves to the Lord. Come and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple of the Lord. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings and all whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings. And the narrative concludes in verse 35 and 36. So the service of the temple of the Lord was re-established. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced at what God had brought about for his people because it was done so quickly. In some, there's been a recognition of their failed relationship with God in the past and also God's justice in carrying out his covenant promises to punish unfaithfulness. And they've started to take their relationship with God more seriously and turn back to him and to seek to worship him according to the law that established the temple worship. And this is a good moment in the history of the Old Covenant. If we think back to the time of Solomon when he dedicated the temple to the Lord, it's, it's kind of heading towards a higher note like that. What could we say about our worship of the Lord, though? Things change somewhat as members of the New Covenant. Uh, we don't offer these sacrifices uh, that they offered. There is sacrifice in the New Covenant. It's a sacrifice of praise, but it's of a different kind. In fact, we remember that uh, one sacrifice has been made. John the Baptist talks about how Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and we, we sing that song. And in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, we, we're given some teaching about how Jesus' sacrifice is so much more effective than the blood of bulls and goats. Hebrews chapter 9, 13 says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. 
How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? He's saying if there was advantages in those people maintaining their sin by the sacrifices God provided, how much greater a sacrifice do we have in Jesus who offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice who who cleans us up altogether. The bottom line is we stand as those who've benefited from Jesus' perfect sacrifice. We stand as those who have the comfort of being cleansed from our sin. This is a comforting thing for us as God's people. And the reason we stand in that place is so that we might be those who serve the Lord or be among those who worship the Lord. But what does our worship look like? Well, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And at this point, sometimes jokes are made about the living sacrifice crawling off the altar. That's not really uh, the thrust of it. It's the idea that we're to give our whole lives in worship of the Lord. It's true that we do worship the Lord together when we come and pray together when we uh, sing praises to God together but we're we're selling ourselves short friends if we think that's that that's what our worship is limited to because as living sacrifices worship flows over into all kinds of areas of our lives we worship the Lord as we think about how we can relate well to the people that God's put in our lives we can think about how we might worship the Lord in the, the various interests that we have some people at the 845 church service, they, they do lawn bowls. I'm not sure how many lawn bowlers are here. But even as they do their lawn bowls, how could they worship the Lord? Well, maybe they could obey the, the umpire or the referee. I noticed in the bulletin, uh, Steve Watts got some Port Macquarie Christian students activities happening soon. Uh, the uni students are facing exams and you're organising toasties, is that right? That would be the ministry of the toasties. And so uh, there's another area that people can worship the Lord as they seek to help provide food for students in that time. Either way, we could keep thinking about how worshipping the Lord flows over into all kinds of aspects of our lives. Let's keep thinking about that this week. So worship changes a a little uh, in the New Covenant. Well, in the next chapter we see that Hezekiah gets on the front foot. It's time to celebrate the feast, which reminded the people of God's great saving event in the past, the Passover, how God was willing and had the power to save his people out of slavery in Egypt. And Hezekiah took it upon himself to take this as an opportunity to unite all the people of Israel to worship the Lord together. We're at point two in the outline, and I'll pick this up uh, from chapter 30, verse 1. Hezekiah called others to return to the Lord. Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah, and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. I'll skip down to verse 6. 
At the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials, which read, People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their fathers, so that he made them an object of horror, as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God, so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land, for the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. And we find out that the couriers went to different towns throughout Israel. That Some people scorned that message to return to the Lord, and yet other people took it seriously and came down and celebrated the Passover. The challenge there was for them to be different to their ancestors. To be among those who worship the Lord with sincerity at his temple. And the promise was held out in verse 9 that he will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So the challenge is for people to remember God will look upon his uh, favour, look upon his people with favour and bless them as they walk with him. That's, that was uh, par for the course from what the book of Deuteronomy taught about God's covenant relationship with his people. He would bless them if they walked with him. And if they forsook him, they would experience his uh, judgment. And so despite the fact that some didn't and rejected the message, others did. And then they celebrated this good time together. In chapter 30, I'll pick this up in verse 20 time, uh, verse 25 rather. The entire assembly of Judah rejoiced, along with the priests and Levites, and all who had assembled from Israel, including the aliens who'd come from Israel and those who lived in Judah. There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them, for their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. This is a picture of life in the land as God's intended it. It's a great celebration which recalls even the time of the, the dedication of the temple during Solomon's time. And their worship of the Lord and celebrating the Passover didn't stop there. In chapter 31, we find out that they put away the idols and smashed some of the uh, sacred stones and Asherah poles that had been uh, defiling the land. Hezekiah was a different kind of king to Ahaz, wasn't he? He was diligent in maintaining God's law. He's a good example of someone who's faithful to God. In chapter 31, he also re-establishes the priesthood and the Levites to be among those who minister and serve the people, not only in the temple, but also throughout the land and to guide them spiritually in walking according to God's law. He put his worship of the Lord into action not only calling the Passover feast, but also reinstating uh, the tithe to help pay for the ministry of the priests and the Levites. As we reflect on Hezekiah's zeal for the Lord, we can also think about uh, the responsibility that we might have to call people to return to God as well. 
Hezekiah was keen for the people of Israel to turn back to God. What about us? Do we have a responsibility to call people back to God as well? Well, in Matthew chapter 28, in the Great Commission, we see that it's God's will that the gospel does go out. And he's called upon the 11, the, the disciples, to make disciples of all nations. Now, different people have different gifts and abilities, and the Bible does speak about some people who have the gift of evangelism and that kind of thing. But do we have a role in sending the message out to the world for people to turn back to God? Well, there is a, a hint of that uh, throughout the Bible. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, uh, Peter says, But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now Hezekiah did well to have it in his heart to want people to return to the Lord. Uh, but we also have this challenge to, to at least have in mind a message that we could share with the people that God puts in our lives, those who don't yet know the Lord, that we might always be prepared to have an answer ready to give for the hope that we've got. That's a challenge for us, uh, whether you've got the gift of evangelism or not, we can still uh, offer a reason for the hope that we have. Some people may scorn that message, but who knows? It's hard to tell uh, when we throw the seed where it lands and some may turn back to the Lord. Well, in our final section, we see the end game for Hezekiah looking a bit stressful. In fact, he does trust in the Lord, but he doesn't simply sit on his hands. He's very active. In chapter 32, verses 1 to 5, with the news that Assyrian king Sennacherib is on his way, Hezekiah gets to work with the men to organise some of the best defence possible. And we learn that they solved the problem of a water supply to Jerusalem. Uh, so that the capital city had access to fresh water, but the enemy didn't. Now at this point, can we go to a slide? Um, there it is, look at that. This is showing that the Bible accords well with history. Uh, in fact, I'll hold up a book. Here's my book, Evidence for the Bible. That picture's bigger than this book, though. The account here is how, during the reign of Hezekiah, this tunnel got built uh, and diverted, and it was over 500 metres long. And at its deepest point, it was 49 metres underground. And as soon as the men got their tunnels together, they, I think they celebrated, but they also put a little plaque there to say, you know, um, we've made it. Uh, and it's still a bit of a mystery how they did so well to get this deep tunnel, but it worked well. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord and got active. Okay, you can ditch that picture now, so we keep concentrating on this. Furthermore, in verse 5, uh, we, we are reminded that the workers set about repairing the walls as well, and they made some weapons of war and armour. Ultimately, they, they got, they got organised, but they still trusted in the Lord as their refuge. Uh, and Hezekiah was very confident in God. In verse 6, we'll pick it up there. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them 
before him in the square at the city gate and encouraged them with these words, be strong and courageous. It reminds us of uh, the time of Joshua, doesn't it? Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, king of Judah, said. Having said that, the threat of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, was still pretty much on their doorsteps. And Sennacherib tried to terrify the people with his words. We'll skip down to verse 15. Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your god deliver you from my hand? Sennacherib's officers spoke further against the Lord and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters insulting the Lord, the God of Israel, saying this against him. Just as the gods of the peoples of the lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. Then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and make them afraid in order to capture the city. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the other peoples of the world, the work of men's hands. Now these threats must have weighed very heavily upon Hezekiah uh, because Sennacherib had already been busy at Lachish uh, waging war there and boasted that he'd captured a lot of people. But the chronicler in verse 19 spells out how wrong Sennacherib was in his assessment of the God of Israel. He makes the case that the God of Israel is not like the gods of the peoples of the world, the work of men's hands. He's saying God is different. He's not someone created. He is the creator. And because Hezekiah and his faithful people are confident of this, they do the right thing, don't they? They cry out to God in prayer. In verse 20, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the leaders and the officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons cut him down with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. From then on, he was highly regarded by all the nations. And just to another little ancient history note, um, Sennacherib wrote some uh, messages about uh, trying to capture uh, King Hezekiah, but he said he, he just locked him up like a bird in a cage. That's, that's one of his records, uh, which was a, a little way of saying he didn't quite get him. So, yeah, that's, that goes down in history as well. This is a great message, isn't it? Uh, the Lord was with them. Their God was there to help them and rescue them and fight their battles. They were confident in the Lord. 
And it's the right way that the king should lead and live, to be trusting in God. The final days for Hezekiah could still have been a little bit better. Perhaps this went to his head. We're told in verse 25 and 26 that his heart became proud. And yet he still repented from that attitude before the Lord. So that's, that's still good form. And the account still ends pretty well. In verse 27 to 29, we recount how Hezekiah prospered under the Lord and how he built villages and buildings to store up the grain and livestock that God had granted him as a gift. We close the account in verse 33, if you're reading on. Hezekiah rested with his fathers and was buried on the hill where the tombs of David's descendants are. All Judah and the people of Jerusalem honoured him when he died. And Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. Well, how did the Lord exactly rescue Hezekiah? Well, we're told that it's through the angel of the Lord. Other accounts talk about a plague. Either way, God stands behind this rescue in an unexpected and unusual way. And as we think about how God has saved us, uh, we're not being saved from enemy fighters uh, in, in this, this stage of salvation history, our, our rescues from the devil, sin and eternal damnation. Uh, God rescues us in an unusual and unexpected way too, doesn't he? Through the cross of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. This is what the Apostle Paul says about that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22, he says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Christian message is that salvation comes through an unusual and unexpected way, through Jesus dying and rising for our sins. Well, we can only give thanks to God that that's been the way that he's chosen to save us and that's something we can rejoice in. We trust God for salvation through Christ in life and the re result or the fruit of that leads into eternity. But even as we live, it's still the right thing to do to follow the footsteps of Hezekiah and to trust the Lord in prayer. I began this sermon asking, are there moments in life when things are complicated and you're tempted to lose hope? And I shared about my friend Luke who asked for prayer for his wife. Now, life is not always straightforward in a fallen world, but in this case, the news improved. Luke let me know that uh, the nature of the problem was something that could be worked on, and the net result was some stitches and removal uh, and probably some medication that goes with anti-seizure, but no chemotherapy and his wife is back home and she's on the mend. And Luke is very grateful to God and grateful for the people who've been praying uh, and, and they're anticipating a, a, a pretty good recovery. Things don't always work out neatly in life, but irrespective of the outcomes, it's the right thing to trust the Lord, to approach him and to pray about things. We saw that that's what Hezekiah did in this passage today. And the right way for us forward also as God's people is to trust him and to take things to the Lord in prayer, to be among those who keep trusting God.
And that's what we're going to do now, friends. So let us close in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Look, God, we give you thanks for the salvation that we enjoy through an unexpected and unusual way, through Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Lord, we give you thanks that we've been saved to be your people who would be uh, living sacrifices, uh, holy and pleasing to you. And Lord, we do pray that you'd help us to be mindful of uh, all sorts of areas in our life when we can worship you as your people. Lord, we give you thanks for your work in our lives that you've saved us and we pray that you'd help us to be among those who can offer a reason for the hope that we have in life through Christ to, to the people who might ask us about uh, our hope. And Lord, we give you thanks that we can trust you both in life and in death. We thank you that as we face all diff different uncertainties, uh, we give you thanks that you are in control of things and you, you do care for us. And so, Lord, we give you thanks that we can put our lives in your hands. Lord, we thank you for this message today of, of a, a different kind of king, one who sought to be more faithful to you. And, Lord, we pray that you'd be working in our lives and, and help us to be faithful to you as well. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.